Well, I ask if you will to please turn again to the book of Romans, the first chapter, as we look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1 of the book of Romans. Now, last Sunday morning, we dwelt upon the new birth and unpacked, I, I hope in a fairly thorough way, what the new birth was all about, and in the evening, the broader concept of effectual calling, which came also from the text before us, and this theme of effectual calling was... Uh, illustrated in a variety of ways in that sermon. We'll mention calling again tonight because it's essential to the text, but we're going to focus on several themes as we work our way through these verses tonight in addition to calling. Let's pray briefly before reading. Our Father, as we turn again to the Word of God, we pray that our hearts would be docile under it. That is, that we would not fight against it, but that because of the regenerating work of the Spirit, you would give to us hearts that crave your word, that desire your word, so that we may feast by faith upon Christ himself, who is revealed on every page of Holy Scripture. And we ask that you will so work within our hearts that we, your people, will be more conformed to the image of your Son, having spent time in this word than before coming here tonight that those in our midst who may be lost and undone would, would leave knowing Christ and trusting Him as Redeemer and Savior through the work of the Spirit of God within their hearts, that you would remove all insincerity and hypocrisy, all of those things to which we might cling, that would keep us from loving Christ as He should be loved, for He has loved us with a love that is everlasting. And we pray that you would give to us malleable, teachable hearts, For you are the potter, and we are the clay. In the name of Christ, we pray as we turn now to this text. Amen. Romans, the first chapter, even though we're focused on verses 6 and 7, let's read again the verses that we have been pondering over these past many weeks. Beginning with verse 1, Romans chapter 1, this is the Word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's read again verses 6 and 7. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What glorious truths we've been privileged to glimpse from these verses over these past many weeks. Given by inspiration, every word is profound and is to be pondered. And especially we have seen the great heights of salvation by the revelation, first of all, of the triune nature of God in this passage, that behind our salvation is the love of the Father and the death of the Son and His resurrection and the calling of the Spirit of God. But also we have seen in these verses the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, especially His incarnation by which He makes atonement 
and his resurrection from the dead so that we are reminded right from the start in this passage of the essentials of the gospel of Christ that he came, that he redeemed, that he rose from the dead, that our Savior lives, that he's not in a grave. And we focused last time on this word calling last Sunday evening, but now we return to these verses and draw strength from other words in this connection. In order to do that, I think, first of all, we need to start with this idea of calling once again, not comprehensively as we did last week, but simply to set the stage for what comes. So we first of all notice that the believer is called of Jesus Christ, verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And look again in verse 7, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And so the Apostle Paul stresses this truth of the divine calling of the Father through the Holy Spirit's work. Now this calling is not just an invitation, but is a sovereign drawing. It is not simply the general call, as we distinguished the general and special call last week, but the Apostle Paul always has in mind the effectual call, the irresistible call of the Spirit of God bringing his people to salvation. If you look, for example, at the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, in that 8th chapter, you may turn there, you find in verses 28 and following, the Apostle Paul saying, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This, sometimes called the golden chain, demonstrates to us that behind our calling is the predestinating decree of God the Father. That our calling is extended all the way back to the purpose and plan of God to redeem his own from our sin. If you look at the ninth chapter of the same book of Romans, in verses 19 through 24, you find in this passage that underscores the sovereignty of God so, so blatantly, we find this word call again. Chapter 9, verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he yet find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul making plain once again that our calling has behind it the eternal purpose and the decree of God. Or if you were to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians and note how the Apostle Paul uses the term calling. In the ninth verse of the very first chapter, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
In verse 24 of this chapter, he is speaking of the gospel of Christ, the crucifixion that is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In verses 26 and 27 of this chapter, for consider your calling, brothers. You see the word again, your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. And so you see in this passage that calling and choosing are so intimately related as to be inseparable from one another. Now turning back then to the first chapter of Romans, what we find in the Apostle Paul is that always, in every instance of which I am familiar in his epistles, when he refers to calling, he does not mean the general call, that is to say the gospel preached indiscriminately, that's a biblical truth, but he means the special, the effectual drawing of the Holy Spirit, whereby the Word of God is taken to the heart and to the conscience of the sinner, so that we are actually called, effectually drawn out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's own dear Son. That's the way in which Paul makes use of the term call. So that he says in verse 6 of Romans 1, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. These are those that the Spirit of God has convinced of sin and misery. He has enlightened their minds. He has renewed their wills. And to them, He has extended to every faculty of their souls the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit, even down deep to the affections of the heart, so that He has brought the dead to life. What a marvelous thing it is to know that our calling of God is such that when God has a people, He says, you, as it says here, belong to Jesus Christ. And therefore, belonging to Jesus Christ, chosen of the Father for whom He shed His blood, He will effectually call you to Himself. It is irresistible and it is infallible. It will come about. And so, Haldane rightly says that The Apostle Paul has a double right to address these people in Rome because he is an apostle to the Gentiles, and this is primarily, though not exclusively, a Gentile church. That is his calling as an apostle, but he also is addressing those who have received their calling as believers in Christ from God the Father. Christ said, Come unto me, all you that that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest And the Spirit of God enabled them to respond to the call of Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. He drew me and I followed on, charmed to confess thy love divine. And he says this is true of all who are there in verse 7, Jew and Gentile. So you see this mission upon which the Apostle Paul has embarked by the call of God to be an apostle to the world. According to the Apostle Paul, That mission is successful because behind it will be the irresistible working and power of the Spirit of God among all the nations, as he puts it in verse 5, or among Jew and Gentile, as he also puts it in this 
passage. It's a wonderful thing to consider, is it not? We love God because He first loved us. And that leads us to the second thing we see in the text, love. He not only says they are called of God, but He speaks so personally and so intimately as to say to them and to say to you, the people of God, that you're beloved of God. You're beloved of the Father. Notice again in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. Not only now, but from all eternity. You have been loved by God the Father, and how important and essential for us to remember that there has not been a time in the being of God that He has not loved His people with a special, everlasting, saving love. There has never been a time when you, believer, in particular, never a time in which you were not in His heart, in which He did not have this special, saving love for you as He contemplated you fallen and in sin. Jeremiah 31.3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love, Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. That is to say, behind the effectual call is the love of the Father that set in motion all that was necessary in order to redeem you and me from our sins. How I love to dwell upon this theme, and I hope you do as well. Is this not what binds the unbreakable golden chain in Romans 8 that we have read together so that he can tell us that behind the predestinating work of God is nothing but God himself, and that flowing out of that predestinating work is his call, leading us to understand that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from that awesome, almighty, impenetrable love of God. God's love, then, is a love that precedes our love, that enables our response by faith and enables our love to God Himself. We love God because He first loved us. And so there, see, His eternal love displayed as we move on in the book of Romans in those powerful verses of the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, in which he says in verse 6 and following, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And so the book of Romans is filled with testimonies of the love that God has for you, His people. He speaks of His love in eternity past. He speaks of the love of the divine decree. He speaks of the love of the call that draws you to Himself. But the way in which He has most clearly demonstrated, proven His love to you, is by the sending of His Son to die upon a cross and bear the wrath of God in your place. If you can say from the heart, in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood, hallelujah, what a Savior, then you are responding to that love that has been shown to you 
in the cross of Christ. And it means this, that no matter what comes, no matter what disturbances, what shaking may come in your life, what difficulties, what hard things to bear, there is one thing you can never doubt in the midst of it all. God loves me, and He's shown it, He's proven it, He's demonstrated it in the cross of Jesus Christ when He died in my place and for my debt. Now, you are called. You are beloved of God. But notice also that he says something else. He wants to define our Christian lives and our Christian experience. And so he says this in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved of God and called to be saints. Called to be saints. Now the word called is again used here. And and the reason that the word called is used in reference to saint, you see it here, don't you? Look at it. All those in Rome who are loved of God, there's the love, and called to be saints. So there's love, there's calling, there's sainthood. The reason that calling and sainthood are inseparable should be very clear to us. The reason is that no one can make himself a saint. Nobody can do that. It requires the sovereign call of the Father in order that we become saints. Now, the translation that we use here in this congregation, the English Standard Version, is a very, very solid translation, among the most literal and certainly uh, very possibly the best. But when it says here, to all who are in Rome loved of God and called to be saints, it misses the point. Because the literal translation does not have the verb to be, but it's really called saints. Not called to be saints. There's a truth there, and we need to talk about it. But not called to be saints, but called saints. As Hendrickson well translated it, saints by virtue of having been called. Do you see the difference? Not called to be saints. He's not saying here, there is something in your life to which you must live up. He's not even saying here, there's an imperative. There is an imperative, but that's not his point here. We need to say that, we need to make the point, but the point here is pure indicative. You are called, you are called, and by virtue of that calling, you are a saint of God. That's who you are. This is who de- what defines you, sainthood. Now, we'd better get an understanding of this word saint, don't you think? If we're going to understand what the apostle means in this passage... He does not mean one who is canonized by the Pope, who is special in holiness above his fellows, so that after you die, you can be canonized and you will be recognized as one of the very few special holy people in the church. He doesn't mean that at all. I remember reading years ago of an old preacher who was on a train, and he was there in the compartment with a a group of nuns, and he took their own translation, I assume the Douay version, And he showed them from their own translation that every believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. And my, were they taken by surprise. But that's the truth. Now, I'm not suggesting that when the service is over, that when you shake hands with your brother or your sister, or your sister, that you uh, speak to St. Jim, how are you tonight? Or um, that you uh, speak to... uh, this saint right here, and call him a saint, Saint Chris, that you speak to um, 
this saint back here, and you call him by that name, it's not a title. It's a fact that defines you. It's a truth concerning you. What then does Paul mean when he says we are called saints? He means by that, reflecting Old Testament background, people, places, objects were set apart, were consecrated, utensils were consecrated. They were, the tithes were consecrated. Priests were consecrated. Israel was consecrated. And so he takes that theme of consecration. He brings it over into the experience of the New Testament believer. And he says to us, so we are saints, consecrated, set apart for God himself. And all of those whose guilt has been removed by the blood of Jesus Christ... All of those who have been called, all of those who are indwelt by the regenerating work of the Spirit of God are set apart for the Lord and for His service. And that causes you to be recognized as possessing sainthood. That's what it means that you are a saint. Now that's the indicative. As we move on in the book of Romans... The Apostle Paul is going to work out the imperative. That is to say, this is who you are. Now, this is how you live because of it. That's the truth in the translation that we have before us. They've just jumped the gun. It hasn't yet come in the book of Romans. That's what Paul is going to do at certain points. He's going to say, since we are saints, since we are holy, since we are consecrated, since we are set apart by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then by all the means of God's appointment, let us live holy lives. Those in Rome who are saints, well, the implication is that you also must live differently because of that consecration and that sainthood. I'll give you an example of where he works that out in the, in the 11th chapter, 13th chapter of the book of Romans. The 13th chapter. He works out, for example, the truth and reality of how we are to live as believers. Notice how he puts it this way in chapter 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of life. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." Now, his point here is just this. In contrast to the nightlife of Rome in which they used to live, they are to think of the coming of Christ, and that is to inform their living so that we no longer live for the gratification of the flesh, but we live according to the sainthood that he says in chapter 1 has been granted to us by the effectual call of God the Father. Now, that speaks to you. It should. If indeed you are wholly set apart, consecrated through the blood of Jesus Christ and called by the Holy Spirit, then you need to also seek to know those areas in life in which you need to believe and repent and live in a way that is different than the world around you. 
that the Apostle Paul will make clear in many places. Paul has used the terms of himself called and set apart, and now he speaks to the saints as those who are called, those who are set apart. And in chapter 6 of Romans in particular, he will emphasize, this is who you are in Christ, therefore be who you are. This is who Christ is, he defines you, live consistently with that definition. In other words, do you let those things that are true about you determine how you live? Do you? Do I? Are we growing in grace and learning this? But let's not miss this point as well. Fourthly, that as he speaks of this call and the love that God has for his people and our sainthood, our being called saints, he also speaks to us and he says grace and peace. Now we tend to just read over this, but let's not. The very last part of verse 7, in this salutation, in this letter, he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Apostle Paul, when he wrote letters, would generally speaking, some exceptions, but generally speaking, take the norm for letter writing of his day, and he would make use of the form, but he would greatly alter the meaning of words so that the power of the gospel was immediately evident in the salutation. It's a very fascinating thing to read some of the ancient letters and to compare them with the Apostle Paul and his salutations. So Paul transforms the Greek and the Jewish greetings of his day. In the Greek letter, the letter would have begun with some words, opening words, and then it would have used the word kare, joy to you. The Apostle Paul takes that form and he replaces kare with charis grace to you. And then the Hebrew letter would have begun with shalom, that greeting. The Apostle Paul uses the word erene, peace as stemming out and flowing from the grace of God. The order is important. He does not say peace than grace. He says grace and peace because there's no peace but comes from grace. So when in this salutation, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This word kare now becomes charis, meaning a sovereign, unmerited favor, free, saving, loving kindness to the lost, to the undone, and to the ill-deserving. Is that you? It's certainly me. God has shown his grace and continues to show his grace to me the ill-deserving, undeserving sinner. In a sense, all of Romans will unpack the meaning of grace and peace that we find in verse 7 of the salutation of the book of Romans. You remember in the second chapter of the book of Ephesians how the Apostle Paul speaks of our deadness in trespasses and sins? Indeed, he says we were dead. We were conformed to this age. We were enslaved to Satan. We were enslaved to sin, and we were under the wrath of God. But by grace are you saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
And what does Paul the Apostle mean by grace? The source is in God's own sovereign will and deep, deep, deep love. The origin is in eternity past. The movement is toward His chosen people through the cross and the effectual drawing of the Spirit. The promise is security in Christ forever. The channel is the gift of faith by which we receive Christ. Grace, then, means the free favor of God without any work of contribution on our part whatsoever. That's grace. And apart from grace, you and I would be lost forever. We would be undone. And we must, we must beware of the temptation to weave into the righteous robe of Christ even the smallest semblance of a thread of our own works, for that is contrary to the meaning of grace. You then are a graced people, saved by sovereign free love. The mercy of God has been shown to you, and the drawing of the Spirit makes you participant in it. But also there's peace. Our state of peace is the basis for our condition of peace, And in those times, even in the Christian life in which the condition of peace may elude us, we are still in a state of peace because that means that we're reconciled to God once for all through the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God made peace through the blood of His cross, Paul says in another place. And that's why the order is important, grace and peace. Jesus purchased our peace by satisfying the wrath of God by showing grace to us. And so do you see what Paul is doing? Paul is everywhere and always the predestinarian Paul. He really is, folks. He's he's motivated by that truth. He preaches the gospel out of that truth. He's passionate about this truth. He lives life out of this truth. And so what Paul is doing is saying this. There is the love of God. And that love of God is behind your calling. And you have been called. And in that call, you have been shown grace. And He continues to show you grace. And you have been shown peace through the blood of the Savior. So He's taking these people already in the very First verses, all the way back, back, back to the eternal counsel of the love of God the Father. And he is saying, do you see your salvation that I'm going to expound in this epistle? Your salvation is grounded and fixed in the eternal love that God has, in the eternal decree that the Father has to save His people from their sins. So he says, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, because already we have indicated in these verses this Trinitarian God. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. That God the Father thought it, that God the Son bought it, that God the Spirit brought it. The devil fought it, but thank God, I got it. Grace, grace, grace. 
So these simple verses conclude Paul's rich salutation that we've been looking at for the past four or five sermons. Well, let's, let's think about these verses just a bit more and then we'll be gone. Some final remarks on verses 6 and 7. Real quick. First, men can only know God by God's saving power through the effectual call. To those taught by the Holy Spirit, this is a most encouraging truth. It doesn't depend upon me. It's altogether His grace. It's Ezekiel's valley of dry bones. The Spirit of God comes upon them and there stands this great living army. That's what the Holy Spirit has done in the lives of His people. Secondly, what a tragic change. Have you ever thought about this? What a tragic change has come about in the church that now is at Rome. He's writing to the Roman Christians of the first century A.D. Go to Rome now and what do you find? Every sola of the Reformation is denied. Grace is so obscured as to be no grace at all. Works righteousness is found at every turn. What a tragedy. But here is my point. I'm asking you to pray for our congregation. I'm asking you to pray for the PCA. I'm asking you to pray for sound churches and sound denominations because it only takes one unbelieving generation for a church to begin to unravel in its understanding of grace and to devolve into a church which is no longer a true church of Jesus Christ. Third, the text says you're beloved of God. Do you know it? Yes, you are loved with an everlasting love. With loving kindness you have been drawn. And so the combination of love, grace, peace, points us back to the electing grace of God. John Owen the Puritan saying, No election, no gospel. No gospel, no church. You're loved by God. And then, fourthly, let us learn to emulate the Apostle Paul in the way in which he greets the saints. I want to be better at that. How does he grieve them? He greets them with the gospel, the first seven verses of his letter. He greets them with the call of God. He greets them with the reality of who they are in Christ. He greets them with grace and peace. No wonder they were built up in the Lord, because as the apostle greeted them, he greeted them with this rich gospel content. Now, you can do that for your brother and sister as well. Emulate the apostle, and let's learn to greet one another, to speak with one another in such ways that these truths that transform our lives are kept at the forefront of our conversation. And then finally, as I speak to the saints who are gathered here tonight, Saints, Christian, always remember that you are a saint among saints. And because you are saints, we cannot love and serve the world. I mean this world system. But the one in whom we are holy and set apart and redeemed. It is him that we now love. It is him that we now serve. And one of the ways in which, a primary way 
in which that is demonstrated is in the way in which we love and serve one another, saint to saint in the church of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.